Hello and welcome to the second episode of our podcast, Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. I'm Vicky Riley. And I'm Christian Kerr. And we're carrying on Arthur Denting our way along the highways and the byways of Scottish literature. We're here again in the Berlin Limited offices. Berlin being one of Scotland's leading independent publishers. And this year, in 2017, um, the company is celebrating 25 years in the book business. And uh, really in all, that's 25 years celebrating Scotland's culture. Yes, and that's what we're doing here. Um, today, we're heading up to the mountains. Well, actually, you've you've been to the... So we're not just heading up to the mountains now. You've been in the mountains this last week. Yes, that's true. And uh, while I was among some pretty impressive mountains and some great wintry weather... Um, I cannot lay claim, I'm afraid, to being one iota of the mountaineer <laughs> that this week's author is. Yes, um, yeah, today we are celebrating the marvellous uh, Nan Shepherd, and uh, we are specifically going to, going to be talking about her classic piece of nature writing, The Living Mountain, which is her celebration of the Cairngorms, the other lovely mountain range that we have. And then later we'll be talking to um, one of our Author's Patrick Baker. Um, he has also spent a lot of time in the Cairngorm Mountains and he has written a really lovely book called The Cairngorms A Secret History. So we'll be talking to him later. And then we also have a little bit of a treat. Um, we have the wonderful Andrew Gregg um, performing some of his mountaineering poetry from his collection Getting Higher, which we also publish too in our um, fiction, poetry and popular culture imprint Polygon. I think it's fair to say that Nan Shepherd is having a bit of a moment just now. Yeah, she's having a bit of a resurgence and it's right and just that she is um, getting, you know, a, a reassessment of her place as a writer of note. Nature writing is not a genre that I sort of naturally move towards. It's not, you know, it's, you know, I'm a bit of a city slicker. Um, so <laughs> but of course, nature writing is, you know, has been one of the sort of great success stories of the last in, few, publishing yeah. in the last few years, isn't the it? whole tables in every bookshop you can possibly go into are just festooned with books on nature writing. So it probably is maybe something that I should investigate more. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about nature writing, I at one point I wanted to say that, you know, Nan Shepherd was surely a nature writer avant la lettre. Oh. But then I'm like, <laughs> nah, maybe Wordsworth was doing it first, probably, you know? Yeah, maybe she probably wasn't the first, but... She certainly, we can definitely call her a pioneer, I'd say. Yeah. And she is somebody that we're glad to see is um, getting much wider recognition. Yeah. She absolutely deserves it. <laughs> so if you haven't heard of Nan Shepherd, but you have seen the new Royal Bank of Scotland polymer fiver. Polymer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I checked the press release. <laughs> um, she's the lady uh, wearing a flapper-style headband. Looking, looking you quite intensely in the eye off that note. Yes, and I read recently about the the making of that that picture. She arrived in the studio and then she saw all the camera equipment and everything, and she sort of kind of realised, oh yeah, this is this is a proper portrait. Right. So what she did was that wasn't even a, a real headband. What she did was she just picked up a roll of photographer's film and wrapped it round her head and stuck a brooch on it. <laughs> So she like she you know she was she improvised yeah she's very resourceful mm, yeah. yeah so this she's got this flapper style but that really wasn't actually her, her real at all. yeah but I I actually think she doesn't look that flappery I think when you look at the picture she kind of looks like a warrior goddess to me absolutely <laughs> and also on the um, 
that the note has got a quotation. So if you have one in your pocket, pull it out. It's a quotation from The Living Mountain yes. on it mm-hmm. about frost. Yeah. And a picture of some part of the Cairngorm. Yeah. Massif. Yes. Yeah. But so, should we do the fact? Yes, let's go for the fact. So, Nan Shepherd, the brilliant, wonderful Nan Shepherd, she was born in the northeast of Scotland in 1893 and lived and worked most of her life there though she did travel a lot as well in her life but she absolutely spent most of her time in her beloved sort of Aberdeenshire area and she spent most of her life teaching at Aberdeen College and she's only written um five books yep that Um, sounds right and this purple patch of creativity was in the late 1920s to the, to the mid-30s. She wrote three novels um, in this period, The Quarry Wood, The Weather House and A Pass in the Grampians, um, all of which, like Lewis Grassett Gibbon at the same time, um, were set in the northeast and bore the same kind of um, themes and hallmarks coming back from war, the, yeah. the, the changing nature of life in the countryside, the encroaching um, technology. Um, and she was very much a part of the modernist movement. And in fact, with her reassessment nowadays, she's often mentioned in the same breath as Virginia Woolf. And rightfully so, in, in my opinion, she's very, very good at the yeah. creation of the inter- of different mm. interior lives. Absolutely. So it's in terms of like style and yeah. stream of consciousness narration, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but also in ter- in terms of theme as well. Like yeah. The sort of dislocation and rupture that's been created by the First World War and how it's got a sort of ripple effect mm. on all parts of society. Yeah. yeah. And th- so after those novels, she also wrote. Um, a collection of poetry, also celebrating the Cairngorms, called In the Cairngorms, and that was published in 1934. And she considered that to be her greatest piece of work. Um, But then it was in the 1940s that she wrote The Living Mountain, which is often said to to actually be her greatest piece of work. That's up for you to decide, readers. (laughs) Um, And she finished that around the, the end of the Second World War. Um, but she didn't. It wasn't published until 1977. So that was what uh, 30 years, 30 years later. Yeah. So you could say that it was a book ahead of its time. Oh, totally. And so she showed it to just one publisher who yeah. rejected it. Yeah. And so she just shoved it in a drawer for 30 years and didn't even think about it. But because of her work with Aberdeen University Press, um, they were the ones that published it in, in the 1970s. 19, yeah, in and, 1977, which was only four years before she died. Yeah. So, The Living Mountain. Um, I can honestly say that I loved this book. I am completely reassessing my whole approach to viewing nature writing now because it was just... It's just a very, very special book. I, what I loved about it, it was... I love its... Um, its generosity of spirit. She is a very generous writer. It's full of boundless curiosity and it's a real celebration of the senses. It's this sort of really interesting mix of um, the sensory and the idea of things that are ineffable but it's really, she's really analytical and matter-of-fact at the same time. Yeah, and, and and you know she's interested in what is one of my my favourite passages, um, which which really sort of highlights this is, is um, she 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 doesn't like glamoury. That that was her <laughs> word, which I quite like glamoury. Glamoury, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She says, I do not like glamoury. 
it interposes something artificial between the world, which is one reality, and the self, which is another reality, though overlaid with a good many crusts of falseness and convention. And it is this fusion of these two realities that keeps life from corruption. So let us have done with spells. <laughs> yes, except for, yes, and that's absolutely right. But the pre- preceding paragraph is kind of interesting as well, because what she does here when she introduces the idea, like, you know, you've just read a disavowal of Glamoury, yes. right? Because she's the, like, what's, this is magical enough. This ground that I'm walking on, these trees that I'm right. walking on, this, these things that I can see and feel and touch and hear and smell, these, this is enough. You don't, need to, mm. you don't need to make something mystical out of it because their very nature is itself. Right. The thing. Because what she... And this this sort of question has arisen because she's talking about sleeping outside. Mm. And she says... um, She says, I have slept in the open as early as May and as late as the first week in October, a time when in our odd and unbalanced climate there is usually a splash of radiant weather. (laughs) My one... Sometimes. Uh, My one October night without a roof was bland as silk, with the late moon rising in the small hours and the mountains fluid as loch water under a silken dawn, a night of the purest witchery, to make one credit all the tales of glamoury that Scotland tries so hard to refute and cannot. I don't wonder anyone caught out of doors at four or five on such a morning would start spelling wrong. (laughs) Fairy and glamoury and witchery are not for men who lie in bed till eight. (laughs) Find an October night warm enough warm enough to sleep out and a dawn all mixed up with moonshine and you will see that I am right. You too would be misspelled. So I think that she, I mean, that whole, that paragraph is so sort of, you know, we're trying to be rational here. Mm. And, and yet. And yet these <laughs> things persist. Yeah. But I, I think that you're right that um, she's. Uh, it's so much about the empiricism mm. of what you what your but eyes there's a there's a real beauty in that though it's not it's not cold it's not mm. you know it's, it's not just about the intellect even though That's she is exactly right yeah it's not even though she is very very clever <laughs> and yeah. brilliant and I I think that this this passage is such a great introduction to this book because um, you know first of all it sort of shows like you know what she does in the mountains and she's yeah. just like yeah you know. I'm a bit weird. I like to go out at night. There's this moment where she yeah. says, you know, people like me who like to wander out, people leave the door open. That's part of getting a sort of total experience. And as we said, it, you know, it seems like she's aware of the romance of the mountains, but also of their reality mm. and the, this sort of rationality, but that doesn't exclude wonder. Right at the very beginning, there's a foreword, which she wrote in the 70s. She is very clear about how how much the mountain has changed since she wrote The Living Mountain, but in a, in a man-made way, in a technological way. Yeah, and, and she, she gives this... It's a, it's a kind of beautiful list, actually. Yeah. She, it's very fast, <laughs> and it's very unlike the rest of the book, yeah, which uh-huh. is meditative. But at the same time, it's completely <laughs> the, the, the book, because she recognises... Like, you can tell she loves... The, the natural beauty and and laments the loss of the pure natural space that the mountain means to her, yeah. but absolutely recognises and acknowledges and accepts the change too. Yeah. Even though she her, her point of view is it's oh it's not the same, but 
she doesn't say, and so therefore it's bad and wrong and raw. It's it's um. So there's this bit where she she's she talks about how there's like a new bustling cafe at yeah. the summit of the Cairngorms, and she writes too many books, too much commo- commotion, but then how much uplift for how many hearts? And it's just that way of how she balances both. But everything, and she encompasses, yeah. encompasses all points of view in her writing in a way that's not judgmental, but at the same time, it's not airy-fairy and neither this or the other as well. It's it's a fantastic talent and one that I'm quite jealous of. There's such an even-handedness, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. It seems like she's refre- refreshingly clear about solitude. Sometimes it's good to be alone and sometimes it's not and you can get a different experience (laughs) Uh from both of these things there's an incredible description right at the end of chapter two about um loch avon and how she looks down into it yes That was one of my favourite bits too. So I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs here. I first saw it on a cloudless day of early July. We had started at dawn, crossed Cairn Gorm about nine o'clock and made our way by the saddle to the lower end of the loch. Then we idled up the side, facing the gaunt quarry, and at last, when the noonday sun penetrated directly into the water, we stripped and bathed. The clear water was at our knees, then at our thighs, how clear it was how clear it was only this walking into it could reveal to look through it was to discover its own properties what we saw under water had a sharper clarity than what we saw through air we waded on into the brightness and the width of the water increased as it always does when one is on or in it so that the loch no longer seemed narrow but the far side was a long way off then i looked down And at my feet there opened a gulf of brightness so profound that the mind stopped. We were standing on the edge of a shelf that ran some yards into the loch before plunging down to the pit that is the true bottom. Mm. And (laughs) through that inordinate clearness, we saw to the depth of the pit. So limpid was it that every stone was clear. I motioned to my companion, who was a step behind, and she came and glanced as I had down the submerged precipice. Then we looked into each other's eyes and again into into the pit. I waded slowly back into shallower water. There was nothing that seemed worth saying. My spirit was as naked as my body. It was one of the most defenceless moments of my life. Yeah. She sort of climbs down from this, Mm. even though she's just like the greatness of the, you know, the fear and the universality and the naked being. (laughs) But then she's just like, the inaccessibility of this loch is part of its power. Silence belongs to it. If jeeps find it out or a funicular railway disfigures it, part of its meaning will be gone. The good of the greatest number is not here relevant. It is necessary to be sometimes exclusive, not on behalf of rank or wealth, but of those human qualities that can apprehend loneliness. So um, I think that is one of the things that's interesting. There's a sort of selfishness in isolation. Mm. And... um, she and a sense of not wanting to share right these are my mountains (laughs) yeah but yeah at the same time if we open them up they'll be ruined but yeah but she still is so glad to hear that they are shared by so many different people like the the lifting of so many hearts is something that she loves too because why wouldn't you want to share? <laughs> Why wouldn't you want to share these experiences? And of course, she must have to have written this book as well. But again, and again, this is this goes back to her 
her generosity of 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 spirit and it's in her, her novels too i've i've the, the the one that i've read most recently is the weather house and the way she gets in all the characters are so different but the way she portrays everybody's inner lives with absolutely no judgment no comment or no condemnation it's just it's just great and yet at the same time you absolutely get a sense of her as a moral human being that she's somebody with a code she's somebody that's got principles but she can acknowledge the differences and the yeah. meaningful differences. There's, there's such a sort of acceptance and um, yeah. of each other uh-huh. in um, the weatherhouse. I think. Yeah, it's not judgment. It's just paying attention. That's that's yeah. all it is. Just um, like real paying attention, mm. and that's the whole of the living mountain. Is is just her paying attention to everything around her, um, and. It's just it's just relentless. The, mm. the sensory explosion in the writing is is just everywhere, and it's beautiful, and it's great, and it's alive, and and um, and and just about how to look at things anew, and the way she pays attention as well. It's it's a it's a it's a real sensory thing because, and she's very honest about how sometimes even language, even though that's her tool, mm. is. It's it's not always appropriate, or or it's not, um, or it just interrupts the yes. the sense of being with the mountain. So there's a great bit where she is talking about looking through um, the the mountain through 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 her legs, and she uses the word bristles to talk about um, the trees or something. And but and then she just says, oh, but bristles isn't the right word. And I love the fact that she kept that in rather yeah. than, than than delete that sentence and try to find the right word other than bristles. Yeah. Because I think Because she actually says bristles is too there's too much movement yeah, in bristles. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's interrupting my thought. Yeah. So the sound of the word. Yeah. And I and I just love that um acknowledgement that mm. sometimes even for a writer and even for somebody that absolutely loves expressing that words, <laughs> they're just not always the best tool. <laughs> right. She she says that when she's trying to talk about smell. Yeah, she lists the smells. And so, and then she it's like she realises that listing the smells actually doesn't give you the smells. So she, so she says, all the aromatic and heady scents, pine and birch, bog myrtle, spicy juniper, heather and the honey sweet orchids and the clean smell of wild thyme mean nothing at all in words. They are there to be smelled. And you're just like, yeah, you can feel her sort of writing that sentence while she was going and then say, what am I doing just listing these? Right. <laughs> and she's perfectly right as well because you, you, you go, oh, when you're reading all those that list of scents, but you're yeah. not actually smelling them. It's not a scratch and sniff book. <laughs> There's a whole chapter, which is really... I mean, the whole book is, in it, is a celebration of the senses, but there's a chapter where she specifically mentions all the senses and she talks about the different feelings, the different smells, the different things that she hears. Um, and a lot of the time when you read a lot of um, the criticism of her they always talk about how she's a great looker she ob- observes things she like sees things yeah um but 
and I, and I and, and 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 all the way through, I was I was like, this look is not the right. It's not good enough. That it's not good enough for what she does. And so I kind of think that actually what she does in her writing and and in the Living Mountain is that she, she inhabits it. She's she's yeah. all in there. It's not just it's not just what she sees. She's not just coolly observing or passing through no no yeah. yeah she she's she's in there with her whole being and it gives you such an int- intimacy of the hills i think this is one of the things that makes this quite an unusual book about mountains um because it's not a linear narrative yeah you know? it's not the story of an ascent it's yeah. not the story of an expedition um and it's really you know it's not even a travelogue yeah it's not like this is my i made one journey yeah there's not beginning middle and end yeah yeah and in the living mountain uh she retreads the same ground and she walks through and around and in and over and across yeah all these different routes and she says i got really quite got a bit bored of the summits after a while <laughs> yeah after maybe doing them once or twice. Um, and she's done it over so many different years and so many different seasons. Mm. Um, and she tells a collection of tales, like little anecdotes, as she goes, as she's describing things. Mm. But she always is sort of drawing attention to the fact that there's been like a gradual sort of accretion and adding and accumulation of yeah. experiences. And she, it's definitely a layering of knowledge. And... When she looks back at it, when she's 84 in 1977, yeah. she describes the book as, quote, the tale of my traffic of love with a mountain. And it is. It is a relationship. Mm. And there's this wonderful moment where she says, uh, the best thing is not to set out to climb the mountain, but is just to set out as if to visit a friend yeah. when the only purpose is to see him. Yeah. That's when the mountain is like you know, speaks to you. Yeah. Um, but uh, what she says here um, is that um, the story, you know, I mean, so so she is writing a story. It's the story of her experiences mm. with the, you know, in and on and with and inside the mountain. Mm-hmm. The mountain has an inside, <laughs> um, and um, that's these stories or this one story produces knowledge both about like its subject and its object so knowledge about her or human being yeah and she writes um of the book that it is a traffic of love is sufficiently clear but love pursued with fervor is one of the roads to knowledge damn straight yeah one of my favorite passages is where she describes the tree the the trees in each season Mm. and different kinds of trees and different kinds of seasons and the way she talks about them um, it's like she really understands their rhythm of life. The book is really carefully structured, mm. um, but in a way that you don't necessarily notice. Yeah. First comes the inanimate, um, and the first chapters, the first six chapters, are all about um, elements. Mm and minerals, and water, and air. And uh, the second half of the book is about life. Mm. And um, she introduces the second half, and she says, I have written of inanimate things, rock and water, frost and sun, and it might seem as though this were not a living world, but I have wanted to come to the living things through the forces that create them, for the mountain is one and indivisible, and rock, soil, water and air are no more integral to it than what grows from the soil and breathes the air. All are aspects of one entity, 
the living mountain. And so even though she's talking about an inanimate objects at the beginning, they're not really. Absolutely <laughs> not. And, you know, uh, she's talking about how they all have different time scales. Yeah. Uh-huh. As well. Yeah. It's like the... The water has its own, you know, it's a seemingly endless source. Yeah. And just bubbles up. So, so all these minerals have their life cycles, mm. short and long too, just as the animals and the plants and... The people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a really... And all of us. ...careful sort of evocation of all of that. Um, and just to come back to your point about looking, um, I think you're absolutely right that finding a different sort of vocabulary or a different word yeah. for that... Like, I mean, yes, obviously she's be, she is a great observer yeah. and looking and what have you is, is, is intrinsic. But when she says, details are no longer part of a grouping in a picture of which I am the focal point... The focal point is everywhere. Nothing has reference to me, the looker. This is how the earth must see itself. Um, yeah. And so, because the earth is just a series of, a uh, collection of dispersed con- consciousnesses, right? Mm. All that all work together. <laughs> and none of them should, like, um, should have primacy. No. Over the others. No. Which I think is really well put. It's well put. <laughs> We came to know it a little. It kept its best fish hidden under glassy water, behind silver backing of the long day's clouds. We cast and retrieved over that mirror till the green quarry reflected only three bodies of light emptying and filling themselves. That place hooked us by the heart. We were landed and released. Now something of us reclines among those hills and the chuckle of its water runs among the world. That was Andrew Gregg reading his poem The Loch of the Green Corrie, which is dedicated to Norman McCaig, and it's from the collection Getting Higher, The Complete Mountain Poems. Just before the word from our sponsors, here's a word from the producers. Hello. The first part of our interview with Patrick has what sounds like a bit of a mountain gale in the background. Apologies for this. The wind miraculously drops after a few minutes. So this is the section of the podcast that we like to call a word from our sponsor. And um, this time round, we've got a Berlin author with us. We've got Patrick Baker, who has written a fantastic book on um, the secret history of the Cairngorms. So hello, Patrick. Hello. So the Cairngorms, that's your, your, your main fascination in this book. When did you become fascinated by the Cairngorms? Well, I first visited the region in my early 20s on various different training courses, mountaineering training courses. And I guess anyone who, who loves the outdoors and loves wild places will, will at some point, I guess, feel this sort of gravitational pull towards the Cairngorms. <laughs> and it's because, for me, it's because they're so unique. You know, there's such a sort of prodigious expanse of uh, wilderness and, and wildness that it's hard not to be kind of drawn to them in some way you know whether you're interested in nature or uh, outdoor activities there's this really strong pull to them for me my interests have developed over time as well they're they're not the most 
aesthetically impressive mountains straight away, <laughs> certainly compared to mountains on the, on the west coast. Uh, but they're, they're, they're very beguiling. The landscape is, is, is very unique, mm. uh, and I think it is to do with the, the sheer expanse of, of wilderness there and uh, their uniqueness in terms of uh, a British context. Uh, the, the height and geographical extent of the, the range is just awesome. I was really struck reading your book and reading um, The Living Mountain by this idea of the Cairngorm range being just like one mountain, a high plateau with sort of eddying peaks. That's a, an image that she mm. really brings out. And... Um, it, does it feel like a sort of place apart because it's just so high? Like once you go up onto the plateau, it's like you're up there. To me, in the certain certain parts of the Cairngorms, or when you're looking onto the Cairngorms from, uh, say, their, their their northern frontier, when you look at the northern Corries, to me they kind of look like an island, massive, and they are they are a massive by by British standards. So they look like this island landmass almost. I think it was W.H. Murray, and he was a he was a very uh, experienced mountaineer, and one of the one of the founding mountaineers in the 1930s, and he had a pretty horrendous experience on the plateau, uh, and you know became hypothermic. Was very lucky to escape with his life, by the sounds of the account. He makes this description of how different it was being back at uh, a low a lowland altitude compared to. <laughs> what it was like several hours before when he was almost battling for his life and he, right. he kind of describes it as a, as a lost continent almost oh, right. it's almost like <laughs> stepping stepping out of one environment into another mm-hmm. it's such a, a sort of uniform landscape to be in on the top it's it's very difficult to navigate in at times um, uh, but it's very disorientating as well you don't have any frame of reference um, ordinarily you'd be able to have some inkling of where you're going by the sense of going up or down like if, you're, if you're on a level area of flatness for several kilometres on end then it's, right. you know, it's a very um, uh, kind of distorting and uh, psychologically um, difficult environment to be in mm-hmm. as well and I, I think I kind of speculate in the book that perhaps this is yeah. sort of one of the reasons why there, there are so many myths and legends about uh, the grey man and yeah. you know, mysterious apparitions that appear on top of the mountains that actually being in that kind of environment does Funny. does sort of prompt uh, <laughs> a strange reaction, a strange a strange psychological reaction to, to what we're normally used to. The story of the shelter stone is just wonderful and fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a kind of fixed point of refuge in the Cairngorms for, uh, hundreds. for hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years. Uh, and it's, it's, it's actually, you know, I, there are no stats on it, but the amount of people that have uh, kind of been saved by having, yeah. having the shelter stone there or, or knowing of the shelter stone's existence there... Uh, must be, you know, uh, hundreds. Yeah. It's just a very big boulder, a, a huge, a huge boulder that's um, uh, fallen from the cliffs at, at one point, and it it rests on several other boulders. Which is, um, you know, when you when you look at it and you kind of uh, probably best not think about it too much yeah. actually, before you go inside, kind of uh, assess it and think actually this huge boulder is on several other smaller boulders. But you know, it's, it's reassuring in the sense it's been there for so long. Your book is really a sort of unearthing of a history that's sort of secret because it's things that are 
no longer visible sometimes, or things that have just left traces. Also, there are real secrets that are intentionally secret. I was really intrigued by the stories of the house. Like the she- the shelters built, what, under the nose of the laird? Yeah, this was, this was a uh, kind of reasonably common practice of... Uh, these early climbing clubs in the mm. in the 1950s and 1960s, and this is how a lot of the bothies uh, in the Cairngorms came about, was from just people informally building their own shelters. The 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 secret house that you're talking about uh, still exists there today. Uh, apparently, there were several at, at one point within the within within the area, and um, it's it's almost uh, an unwritten rule amongst climbers and sort of the outdoor fraternity that you don't reveal the location. So we've been talking about Nan Shepherd's Living Mountain and in your book you actually base one of your chapters around um, following in her footsteps in the Wells of the Dee and later on um, just talking about her sensory experiences of the Cairngorms. How has Nan Shepherd influenced your reading and writing and walking life? Yeah I think for me she's been hugely influential. Um, probably most uh, from the perspective of, of how I perceive uh, the mountain environment and the mountain landscape, and you know the Cairngorms themselves as well, I guess. For, for me, it's it, it's exceptional in the sense it's a, almost a mountain monograph. It, it's um, it's a it's a complete character study on, on the Cairngorms. And to my knowledge, I can't think of a similar piece of work that's so exclusive in its subject matter. Mm. Uh, the way it's influenced me uh, is. It predominantly in the, in the way that I perceive landscapes, I guess, and, and I think it's it's had that effect on on several people that I've spoken to about the book. It's it's um, it kind of gets you thinking differently. It changes your mindset mm. for when you're in the outdoors. I, typically, I'd you know be heading out into the hills and have a very fixed idea of what what I wanted to do and a very sort of narrow mindset on on being in that environment, but. Get to the top. Yeah, get to the, yeah, exactly. You become quite uh, kind of target orientated in what you want to do on, on your day out, and rush to the top and rush back again. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit of a revelation actually to to read the book and kind of think in in, in Nan Shepherd's terms about being in the environment. Your book makes the um, the mountains live too, um, not the the actual mountain itself but through all the stories that you tell um you you know you you bring alive the mountains and all the personal stories that are that are in there bro, of, the, of the people of little places the little myths that, that that come about um was this always your intention to sort of say the mountain is more than this a lot of the, um, the kind of histories the 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 secret histories in, in inverted commas are, are fragments. They're not. They're not recorded mm. in a formalised mm. way. For me, part of the thrill of doing it was to to, to know about these stories and about these personal accounts and um, and to follow them through and see if they could be substantiated in any way mm. by having um, some some reality in the landscape. For the black sandy thing, that was that that to me was really interesting in the sense that I knew. Of this story about this local fugitive, uh, didn't couldn't verify it in any other way apart from uh, trying to find his hideout, which supposedly mm-hmm. was in uh, a set of crags in Rothermarkis Forest. So there was this there was this tangible reality that was that was potentially linked to the story. So 
I guess I was thinking to myself if if I could find this supposed hideout uh, and triangulate where it is from the bits of information that I, I've found out about him, if I could find it, to me it would um, kind of give give some substance to the myth. Mm. And it was you know such a thrill being able to find this kind of small cave yeah. in these crags and you know the perfect hideout for someone who's trying to evade capture and yeah, evade, evade right. the law it's very well hidden very comfortable and when you were making all these trips up, uh, the, about the specific stories in each chapter and all that kind of thing did you then come across other new stories that you were just like stop giving me stories <laughs> mountains <laughs> too, too much to write about yeah um, yeah I guess the I suppose what's in the book is a refined, uh, distilled version of, of, of the stories, of the most interesting narratives that I came across. There, there were certainly other things that I would be hearing about and other stories I probably will follow up personally at some point right. anyway. Uh, I guess in particular the, uh, there's a lot of involvement uh, from the Second World War and how the mountains were used in um. during, during that period, mm-hmm. uh, how they were used for training, what the influence was on the landscape. There's still uh, a couple of shelters, I think, in Glen Feshi that uh, are now ruined but were, were purposely built during the Second World War for yes. um, training purposes. So there's right. still these imprints on the landscape from different periods. I was amazed to... Um, at the statistic about the number of people or the number of airmen of all nationalities yes. who died yes, in incredible. the um, uh, Second World War in particular. It seems 571 in 1943 alone, I know. which is just an astonishing statistic. Uh, it kind of makes you think, how many planes were flying overhead? Yeah. For... Well, it's, it's incredible when you think of the... Uh, it, it's slightly morbid in a sense, but very interesting. And but the, the number of air crash sites in the Cairngorms, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, is around about eight that I know of. Um, and you know, you hear of stories of walkers coming across this debris writ- littered in uh, various different parts of the Cairngorms. Uh, and I wrote about one of them, but it. it it was just one of, of many. It's, mm. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible that there's this um, this amount of, uh, albeit a kind of very very sad history associated with with the mountains as well. Mm. Yeah. But yet, out of that comes the beginning of. So I, I ne- never knew that the beginning of the mountain rescue service was from the RAF. Mm. Yeah, well. it was in, in part a reaction to there was a there was an evolution to it, but it was. It was uh, uh, it was given a, a very big push from um, the RAF's response units, I guess they could be called, mm-hmm. uh, and the formalised training that they saw was necessary to, mm-hmm. to rescue um, uh, grounded airmen and, uh, more sadly, to, to recover bodies mm-hmm. from very extreme environments as well. Right. Which was again, but yet, which intertwined with a centuries-old tradition. Yeah, and I, I, of volunteer rescue. Yeah, it sort of formalised that process where, mm. uh, up until that point, oh, up until the point of kind of formal mountain rescue, there'd be this sense of obligation uh, and 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 willingness by on the part of local people. Uh, stalkers, mm. uh, you know, gillies, gamekeepers who who knew 
the mountaineer environment, who were familiar with it, who were conditioned to being in that environment, who knew the terrain very well. They were naturally called upon to to help in these situations, um, and the the need became more and more pertinent, I guess, as as more and more people took to the hills. Probably from around about the 1920s, 1930s onwards, when outdoor activities became more popular. Certainly from the 1960s onwards, you know, there's there's huge numbers compared to now, compared to say 100 years ago, where people are are venturing out into into wild areas, and, and there's there's that need for formalised response rather than okay. kind of haphazard who's bound <laughs> to help out with this, right. this, this emergency. And um, just when you mentioned the 20s and 30s there, uh, your book tells a really interesting story across the chapters, across its chapters of um, people coming out of the cities and going into the mountains um, and how mount- British mountaineering sort of changed over the course of the 20th century from being a gentleman's pursuit uh, to being a much more sort of egalitarian yeah is that yeah um, I guess it was de- democratised I suppose yeah. in the sense that uh, people realised that the the mountains could be an accessible uh, leisure pers- pursuit for, for, for everyone not just um, a kind of narrow band of, of wealthy gentlemen, which which they always were, uh, and that you know that that history really fascinates me because it's it's hugely influential to um, to modern day climbing, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was driven by um, a lot of guys who came from uh, the shipyards, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you hear stories of them. Uh, fashioning bits of equipment that they use on the on the on the, on the shipyards <laughs> to use as, as, as sort of makeshift climbing equipment and incredibly incredibly resilient and resourceful people anyway. Yeah. And they took took that kind of resilience resilience and resourcefulness and and found a natural kind of outlet for it in in the mountains and mm. uh, and actually you know you can imagine. Uh, you can you can imagine how much of a, a tonic it, it potentially was for them if you're living uh, in a very industrialised yeah. place as Glasgow was in the 1930s to be able to have this access to uh, certainly the the nearer hills which they used to like the Arakar Alps uh, to have access to this environment it must have been in, uh, an incredible relief I would I would have thought I find yeah. I find it that way even even living in uh, kind of modern urban setting that the ability to sort of get into the wilderness is is you know it's, it's a great relief you know? <laughs> I imagine these people would have found it the same way and that you know it sparked a whole revolution for them uh, and and what came from that was the formation of uh, several of the climbing clubs that we see today and, yeah. the, and the kind of ideals and principles were set in place from that point in time where people congregate together and and kind of establish this new uh, this n- new sport, I guess. Yeah. That's it for this edition of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. A big thank you from us to Patrick Baker and Andrew Gregg for their contributions. Patrick's book is The Cairngorms A Secret History, published by Berlin, and both Andrew Gregg poems featured in this episode are from Getting Higher, The Complete Mountain Poems, published by Polygon. 
Nan Shepherd's The Living Mountain and The Weather House are published by Canongate. Mm-hmm. Um, next time we'll be talking Irvin Welsh's train spotting. Uh, we just really can't ignore it just now because of the resurgence and in interest due to the, the release of the sequel film, which is ace, by the way, if you've not seen it already. We hope you enjoyed our foray into the mountains and inspired you to get outdoors if you're not if you're that way inclined and if you're not discover the books, um, especially Nan Shepherd, if you've not already done so. Um, her first novel, The Quarry Wood, is now sitting on top of my pile on my bedside table. Um, and I'm going to look forward to that this weekend. It's always great when an author uh, gets a second life and it seems bizarre to us that she's not as well known, even in Scotland, as, as, as she should be. Absolutely. You know, yeah, like many of the writers that um, are talked about as the Scottish Renaissance, you know, your McDermid's, your Gibbons, your Maclean's and McCaig's. And, um, and it's like last time we talked about Burns and his place in the Romantic tradition, and Nan Shepherd should absolutely be seen and take her place within the early 20th century modernists too. Her, her settings may not be urban, and she wasn't plying her trade in the cities that are, are most often linked with the explosion of modernist culture, but her concerns and her style are very much belong with um, writers like Wolfe and Ford Maddox Ford and Lawrence and Joyce especially in her novels so it's easy to fall in love with Nan Shepherd, and you should do so right now <laughs> to send us off into the hills we've got a per- performance of Andrew Gregg's poem Noidart Revisited mm-hmm. from his forthcoming CD Clean by Rain which is produced by Sound Muddy Productions the lyric is by Andrew Gregg and the music is by Brian Mitchie the CD should be out late March and is for sale via Andrew's website. That's andrew-greg.weebly.com or available from the Burnham CD online shop. See you next time! A little boat across Loch Huon skittered on the shingle. We stepped ashore. Late May in my life. She... Went to Lunaven with our friends, and I had Larvin to myself, sun on shoulders all the way. Few details remain, but a sense of hours of solitude and strength. The hair was there to lift me up. No false top. I wish there had been. Sweets with sweat and turf and ptarmigan. That ridge could have risen all afternoon. At the cairn, I thought to her, on her own summit, loving it, loving me by line of sight. I set off down, exultant. Each step flowed on to the next, jokeless, as though hill and hip were one. We met up at Barristale, full of our day. Years later, we parted, 
dear companion, there are some hills and people we cannot return to, because nothing will be the same, because we never left them.